Again, we're so grateful and honored to have the newly minted, I think he's the newly minted dean of North Park University, Dr. Dennis Edwards. Thank you. Family, friend, come on. Bless Thank him you. as he comes. Thank you. Good morning. God bless you. It's really good. It really is good to be here. Yes, new dean as of uh, this fall term, so <laughs> thank you. It is a pleasure. My wife Susan's not with me. We're just getting back from uh, midwinter in Jacksonville, Florida, to the cold of Chicagoland. But, uh, and she went on down to Orlando to see um, one of our kids, and well, really to see the grandkid, but to see our, see our daughter and her family, too. Um, I'm going to exercise my old man privilege and just say I'm excited about this search committee and, and what's in store for Newcom. Um, and my privilege is I'm going to offer a word of advice. For, I've been on the other side of searches for several times. And somebody said to me, a friend in ministry said, search committees always lie. And, and, and their point was it's like dating. So nobody wants to like, do the full disclosure stuff. So you're always like being gentle. Oh, you like us? We really like you. Let's see how this is going to go. As Brother Cece would say, keep it 100. Because I'm telling you, any leader you want can handle that. So please be honest, all right? I'm just saying. You didn't ask me, but I'm just telling you. <laughs> I also um, acknowledge the, um, just the distressing moment we're in. Mr. Tyree Nichols should be alive. And... And every time we're confronted with these, the, the reality of these systemic issues, we, we often just don't know what to do. We fuss, we complain, we cry, maybe we demonstrate and agitate, and then we do it again. So I don't know what the answer is, but I don't want us to just forget it or treat it like business as usual. So whatever our part is, let's keep asking the Lord to show it to us, where we fit in, where we can fix what's broken, or maybe agitate what's fixed, and see how we, where our prophetic role is. <laughs> As I was thinking about those things this morning, I happened to turn on the radio, I was listening to um, NPR, and I'm hearing a voice of someone being interviewed about trauma in the African American community, and... Uh, <laughs> And the person, Dr. Alicia Moreland Capuya, I was her pastor in D.C. when she was in med school. So it was kind of exciting to hear her because she's doing so well now working at, at, at a Harvard and stuff. And I was like, I know her. It's not, you know, it's kind of like blessed by association. You know, you kind of just want to want to claim that person because you got to be their pastor at some point. Well, I'm also excited to be talking with you about how to study the Bible. And it's, it's a little bit Weird territory for me because, you know, I'm a professor of biblical studies. You didn't sign up to take a class with me. So I have this fear of presenting material and it's going to feel like you're in the classroom. And you say, I came to church today. I didn't really want to be in a classroom. So I'm going to do my best to do it like I would be in the classroom because I'm really not that boring of a professor. Sam would tell you. Sam, Sam can vouch for me. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to do my best here. But um, let me take a moment to pray. 
Lord, we give you thanks because you're good. Your mercies endure forever. But even as we confess your goodness, and we've been singing about it, seeing your goodness in the land of the living, and to, to sing how your loving kindness is better than life, as that psalm declares, all these things we hold true, yet at the same time, we see how humans fall so far short. We are so dysfunctional without you. The structures we create are harmful and toxic and dangerous. And Lord, I'm praying that we could continually turn to you and help others see that there is life and light with you. And Lord, we partly do that because we engage with your word and we see the complexity of life even in the ancient world, but we see the enduring truth that you are good, your mercies endure forever, and you are with us, not against us, and you want to see us be your agents of change, mercy, grace, love in this world. So, Lord, I pray you would help me now to communicate in a way that would be helpful for my friends here, my sisters, my brothers. And I pray, Lord God, that we would come away renewed to look into your word and to uh, let it soak into us and let it change us. Let us be the people we ought to be. So I pray with thanksgiving right now in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I got permission from the leadership because I, I, I'm very bad at self-promotion and I don't like that notion of it. But I wrote a book called What is the Bible and How Do We Understand It? So when I was asked about preaching on how to study the Bible, I said to Pastor Nicole, well, I have this book out. I said, would it be okay? And then I wrote to Pastor Tim, and I think it was to um, uh, Brother Mickey on the leadership team. So they said I could make these available. They go for $13. I'm selling them for 10 So out, out at Newcom Central. So when you come get your free gift, you can get one that's at reduced price. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I'll be back there. If you want me to sign it, not that that makes it worth any more, but if you want me to sign it, I'll be happy to sign it. When I was a kid, I went to a little storefront church in New York City. I grew up in New York City. Our pizza's better. I grew up in New York City, and um, <laughs> I just had to slip that in there. So. <laughs> but I, not to start a fight. Never mind. <laughs> um, and I went to this little storefront church that my father took us to, took us kids to, at least some of us, when we were little, and uh, I still to this day, I just don't know why he went to that church. It wasn't a church he grew up in, but it was the kind of denomination my mother had grown up in. My grandmother was really immersed in it, and it was a church that I'm not gonna, I'm not out to make denominations look bad or anything, that's just not my style. But it was hard, I will say that. And it was the kind of church where um, there were a lot of rules about how to live, especially for women. Um, couldn't wear pants, couldn't wear makeup, couldn't, we couldn't braid our hair. That's the men and the guys, because this was the 70s. Corn rows were big, but we were told that you're not supposed to braid your hair, because there's a Bible verse about that. And there were those kinds of things. And that's just one level, right? Couldn't go to movies, couldn't listen to secular music, couldn't, couldn't um, dance, all these things. Huh? Yes, it was holiness. It was holiness that also had a oneness theology. So they didn't believe in a trinity, it was Jesus only. And and we would not call ourselves Pentecostal because even though we believe in speaking in tongues, tongues wasn't a second blessing like in Pentecostal churches where you get saved and then you speak in tongues for, to be filled with the Spirit. You had to speak in tongues or you weren't saved at all. So I have a lot of stories about this, but this is not about deconstructing my life history here. But, but when my mother was dying of cancer and I was in my college, early college years, 
I would, um, I went through my own sort of existential crisis and I came to a place where I thought, well, maybe I can be a Christian without speaking in tongues because my science, chemical engineering mind just wasn't grasping the way they were trying to get me to speak in tongues. So I remember talking to her a lot. My mother never went to church with us. She would rarely, I, I say never, but I remember a handful of times when she would come because we had a recitation to make, so she'd come, right? Well, anyway, when she was on her deathbed, uh, I remember talking with her, and I asked her, you know, where she was with Jesus, and she said, I believe in Jesus, but I haven't spoken in tongues. I said, no, it's not about tongues. I said, you believe in Jesus? He said, Dennis, I couldn't have raised seven of y'all kids if I didn't believe in Jesus. <laughs> and she, she said that. But at her funeral, <clears throat> there was some, the pastor was up there, and the guest person, there was a guest, I didn't even know this minister, but he was there to kind of open up the service and welcome people. And when he, you know, announced that we were going to say goodbye to this dear sister in the Lord, the pastor shot him a glance and, like, shook his head. So in front of my traumatized 17-year-old, 14-year-old, and 11-year-old sisters to make sure that it was clear that she was not going to heaven. So I remember thinking how, you know, I want to know the Bible better because I feel like as much as we talk about these painful and sinful systems that hurt people, people have used the Bible to traumatize people, to kill people, to justify all manner of injustice. They commit exegetical malpractice, probably greater than doctors commit medical malpractice, and we don't do anything. We can't do anything. We fuss at each other on Twitter, but this, there is a better way. People's souls are at stake. So I decided to take this stuff seriously. The more I study, the more I realize I need to learn. One thing about studying a lot is it humbles you. At least it ought to. It ought to. But I'm excited to share with you what little I'm believing about the scriptures right now. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 to start our uh, adventure today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing <clears throat> sort of a farewell letter, his last letter before he is executed, to his protege, Timothy. And he I'm going to jump in at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from inf infancy... You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So the scriptures, Paul is telling, I mean, part of the last words he's given to Timothy is about making sure you pay attention to the scriptures and you, you know them. And of course, for Paul, scripture would have meant what we call the Old Testament. It wasn't a whole New Testament by then. In fact, um, we get the New Testament letters start to get included in as scripture as time goes, goes on. So he's even talking about just the Old Testament. Well, he wants Timothy, and I think by extension us as readers and as people of faith, to also be people who would understand this God-breathed inspirational scripture and how it's helpful for us. I came across a little cartoon as I was thinking about scripture. This was, oh my goodness, 25, 30, oh my goodness, 
I don't want to say how many years ago, but it was in a, a leadership journal. I had no idea what to have a doctorate by then. I had no idea I would be a professor, so I didn't even cite the source. I just copied it, you know, because it was funny, and I copied it, funny to me, and I copied it. I actually had it on a transparency <laughs> for an overhead projector. Yeah, it's old, but you can't see, but the cap caption says, I think Paul wants everyone to say what this verse means to you. Now, when I, when I used to share this in class, everyone my age or close to my age would bust out laughing because it's like every Bible study we've ever been in in our lives. You sit around and everybody says, well, just say what this verse means to you. Now, I notice as I share that cartoon as time goes on, people don't laugh as much. They either don't have the experience or they actually don't see the problem with this. Is there a problem? Potentially. So teacher mode here, you got to like talk back a little bit. I mean, you can tell me to sit down, but, and, and I will. So what's the potential problem? Quickly, we don't have all day. Huh? A lack of context, what else? Sub subjective. Yeah, that was the word that came to me, subjective. Any other word? Back there by the computer? Oh, so you are actually suggesting that somebody wrote this with an intention. Yes. So that's where the subjective, the thing that was funny about for me when I read it is that Paul wants you to do this. It's so funny because you're like, you had an author. Somebody wrote something and his goal is for you to make up what you think it means. So that's, so there is a problem here, but it's been every Bible study I've been through, especially when you get to a passage that's confusing, difficult, like, what does it mean to you? Now, I shared this in class one time. I share that cartoon all the time in class because I think it's funny. And I, so I share, but it gets me talking about things like exegesis and hermeneutics, stuff that sound fancy but really is basic because you do it with everything. We do it with the Constitution. We do it with everything. Um, any document, of course, that predates us, we're doing our exegesis and trying to see how it applies to our lives. So we do this with the Bible. So we talk about, but I had this student who said, well, wait a second. He said, I grew up in a church world where I was never invited to engage what the scriptures say. It was always just told to me. And I said, I get it. So the funny thing about the cartoon is that it can lead to a lot of subjectivity. But the interesting thing about the cartoon is that it actually is talking about inviting us into the text in ways that weren't the case for a lot of people. So maybe we could change the preposition what this verse means for you instead of to you. I don't know. But the point is, we are to engage the scripture. It's not just something some expert tells us what it means. We're supposed to engage. And if it's God-breathed, it's profitable, and we need to understand that. But, but there's, there are some ways to understand ancient documents, so it's help, helpful to keep in mind that the Bible is an ancient library. It's an ancient library. It, as, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think it was about three weeks ago when Pastor David Swanson was preaching, he quoted something that our beloved... Um, uh, emeritus faculty, Dr. Klein Snodgrass would often say the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, that it's an ancient document that keeps on living and keeps on giving. So it's a library, though, meaning it contains a lot of books written by a lot of people over many years, even though the Holy Spirit in, uh, inspired these writings. So there's a few things I want to say about that reality. And um, uh, anyway, let me just go at it. The first is that the scripture tells a story, and it isn't a collection of magical incantations. Now, I have been in the church world where people treated the Bible like it was a list of magical incantations. I just will open one up, and I'll recite it, 
and then everything should get better. And, and Christian culture does that. It gives you like, you go to a bookstore, Christian bookstore, if they still have those things, and you get a bookmark and it says, if you're happy, read this. If you're sad, read this. If you're something, read this. So you have to have like a verse that's gonna solve all your problems, like all by itself, almost like an incantation. And um, they don't have any that says, you know, if your whole world's just falling apart and you wanna see things, you know, like, put back together or, you know, read this or anyway, there's a whole lot of things that aren't put on that bookmark. But, you know, if you ever see a movie like the Harry Potter movies, oh, you Christians didn't see those movies, um, <laughs> or read the books, um, or if you see a movie, a movie like The Mummy, oh, y'all Christians don't see that, but it was PG-13. But there's always these scenes, there's always a scene where there's mystical stuff going on and somebody has to find like the right words to say. And when they say the words, either read from some ancient book or Wingardia or Leviosa or whatever they do, they say the word, then everything happens. Like things start swirling around, things happen. You never know, like, what's the source of the power of that thing. It's just the words themselves make that thing happen. And we sometimes treat the Bible that way, that it's like a list of incantations. If I just say these words, the magic starts to happen, and we don't think about what is, what's supposed to be happening in us and to us or the power behind those words that's really the authority. We talk about the authority of Scripture. It's the authority of the one who gave us the Scripture. This is, this is part of the, the, the thing that Christians, I think, are starting to realize more and more as I see more and more that's being written, is that it's not magical incantations. It's getting to know God better. And the Scriptures get us there. So the first thing, Scripture tells a story. Now, I could say more about that story, but I do believe Scripture tells a story. I call it a love story. I've had some people mad at me in church when they said that. I said, the Bible's a love story. It's not a rule book. I had somebody at the door tell me it is a rule book, and then, you know, we didn't go back and forth. And I said, I, got I understand. You, you want rules, and I, a lot of people like rules. But I want to see this God wooing us. He's telling us how bad the world got early on, how messed up people are, and what I said earlier, how bad the systems can be. And he says, but if you love me, come on. You'll be part of this family that will transcend this mess and can live in a new reality even while we're here on earth. There's a story. But there's a second thing. That scripture's story is Christ-centered. This is to say that Christians see all of the Bible as pointing to Jesus, even the Old Testament and the New Testament that describes the person and the work of Jesus. Yes, the Trinity is revealed in Scripture. We see the Father, the Son, the Spirit. But there is a climactic and unique role that Jesus plays as the only begotten Son of God who is God in flesh. The unique Son secures our redemption. He announced the kingdom of God. He told us how to live as subjects of that kingdom. He sent the Holy Spirit to live in and among us, and it's Jesus who will return to earth in his body on the last day to usher in a new age. Jesus is the center of it all. So we read Scripture with this acknowledgement. This does mean that there's a faith component for people in reading Scripture because you can train people to do the ancient work and to study a document. You sure can. But how it speaks to us is a matter of faith. We need to see Jesus. Another point, Scripture's story becomes clearer with the Holy Spirit's guidance. And that's the part I'm trying to say here that we have, um, we have an ancient document where Jesus is at the center, but it's the Holy Spirit who helps us. 
Some folks, again, with the random nature of the Bible, there was an old joke that people would tell when I was in college, so it really is old, but they would talk about how people would just open the Bible randomly to try to get something. So, you know, somebody opened it up and it said, you know, Judas went out and hung himself, and we're like, well, okay, that can't be for me. So they opened it up and it said, you know, go and do thou likewise, and like, that can't be for me. And then he opened it up again and it said, what you do, you do quickly. So, well, actually, it's still getting laughs, like 40 years later, okay, that's good. But, but while it is kind of funny, there have been people who did this with tragic results. And I'm not going to go into details, but I served the church, and there was a person in that church who was manipulative but charismatic enough to attract a lot of attention, a lot of people around this person. And she had this dying woman believing that she was not dying because their Bible had randomly opened to Ezekiel chapter 37, the vision of uh, the um, Valley of the Dry Bones, and had her believing that she would be restored. And that, I mean, there's a lot more to that. I don't have time to explain, but when I would finally get a chance, because she was blocking me from visiting this woman, and, um, but I finally did, took one of the elders of the church with me, and family members were unloading on him how frustrated they were that they couldn't get their loved one to talk about final arrangements because she honestly did not believe she was dying, even though the, the, the cancer was ravaging her body and they were frustrated with this person. And yet the church thought this person was such a wonderfully in touch with God person. Using the scripture because of her own personal desires is not really studying the Bible with the Spirit's guidance. Randomly opening pages and then declaring something to be the case is not necessarily a spirit, spirit guidance. I'll also point out that the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily bless laziness. This is the typical thing. People will say, I don't have to go to seminary. I just have my Bible and the Spirit. So in other words, you don't want to do that work of understanding what the Scriptures were saying, what words mean, how they fit in context, what God is doing throughout time and history, and how these words fit into that and how they might speak to us. You don't want to do that work. So I know this because I have it all the time. I mean, people have, make the joke all the time. Seminary, they say it's cemetery. You just go there for your faith to die. And I've, I've heard this many, many times in my life, even before I went to seminary, even while I was at seminary, even afterwards when I started teaching at seminary, and now I'm a dean of a seminary. I hear this all the time. So people want the lazy route. And just say, I'll just open up my Bible, and it'll tell me what it says. Folks, as soon as you open up your Bible and you can read it in your language, it's already gone through a transformation. Unless you're an ancient Greek or Hebrew person, which is, involves some level of time travel. So that would be um, pretty much not possible, at least right now. So you're already a reading and interpretation, not just a translation. But when something gets translated, it also gets interpreted. So you are already working with something that's not in its, in its original world. So that's not to discourage us. That's just to keep our eyes open and say, hey, I'm reading this. And it's helping me to see something here. Let me, let me compare it to this and see how that's saying something there. Because it's in that kind of work. And you say, but it's work, Dennis. Yes, it's work. You know, Paul says in the, in the other Timothy letter, he says, the old King James says, study to show yourself approved, the worker who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So I grew up with that kind of verse. And the study always meant just book study. But we found out that the word really means more than that. So it often gets translated now, make every effort or be diligent. But, but the old word study worked years ago because it has to do with diligence. It's like when we used to sing, ain't going to study war no more, ain't going to study war no more. 
right? Going to lay down my burden. Because study meant I'm not going to devote myself to this. I'm not going to commit myself to this. So study worked back then. So by being diligent, making every effort, it is an effort. It takes work, but not hard work. It's exciting work. At least it is to me. So I'm hoping that you would find it that way too. But it's work that we do under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So for the lazy folks, they want the incantation. But we're saying for the eager folks, the, the make every effort folks, they want to say, hey, Holy Spirit, help me to understand what's going on here as I do this, 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 this look into the life, into the culture, into the world. So my la next point here is that that kind of work gets done by being in community. Scripture's story is best discerned in community. Now, I was telling you that story about the dangerous, exegetical, wind-blowing, open-the-Bible-up experience. It might not have gone that way if there was a broad enough community of people studying the Bible and it wasn't just this person kind of manipulating another person. We're supposed to do our exegesis together in community. And keep in mind that that community is broader even than our local church. The community of Jesus is not comprised of primarily white Europeans and their descendants. I was wondering if anybody would say amen, even though that's largely the books that get written. The community does include experts who know ancient languages and other things about the ancient world. That's why we buy books like commentaries, because they help us to get a glimpse into that world. But the community also includes people from a variety of backgrounds. That variety of backgrounds get, gets at what scholars refer to as a reader's social location. And I have students who will argue with me on this. They say it shouldn't matter. It just, that's just what the Bible says. Well, it's what the Bible says in your world and with your eyes. That's why we've hurt women so much, because we had just guys reading the Bible. That's why this society tolerated slavery so long and wouldn't let slaves read the Bible. Because because that, with that knowledge comes some power, and somebody else's eyes on the text will make a difference. There's a New Testament scholar named Mark Allen Powell. He has a, you can find it on YouTube. He has a nice little clip, just about seven minutes, where he talks about this notion of social location. And he gives a simple example. He says, not, not to deconstruct the whole parable of the, good, of the uh, prodigal son, but in that parable, he asked the question, how did the young man end up eating with the pigs? He's not asking for some theological deconstruction here, just simply in the storytelling. So let me ask you, how did the young man end up eating with the pigs? Huh? He ran out of money, right? It says that. That's why we call him wasteful or the prodigal son. That was the typical American answer. He ran out of money. So he asked the question in St. Petersburg, Russia. And 75% of his students said there was a famine in the land. In their collective consciousness, they remember um, a huge percentage of their city starving during the war. It says in the text, he ran out of money, there was a famine in the land. Americans, we, we went right past that part. So he taught it in Tanzania, and he asked his students there. And they said, oh, he's eating with the pigs because no one would give him anything to eat. 75% of their students said there was no practice of hospitality. It says in the text, he ran out of money, there was a famine in the land, no one gave him anything to eat. Of course, we Americans focused on the money. We even called the guy the prodigal son, the wasteful kid. We could come up with another name, the lonely kid, the isolated kid. I mean, there's a whole lot of things going on there. But it took some eyes outside of the West to see some things that were going on in the text. Do you follow what I'm saying? So social location matters. Did it change the meaning of the parable? Well, maybe it illuminated it a bit more. 
We need each other when it comes to biblical study and biblical interpretation. So, so okay, I know I'm not going to keep you here all day, but I want us to practice. We're going to do something. I'm, I was going to have us break into groups and be like a teacher and all that stuff. And then I'm one of those introverts that's a group work. <laughs> it's like, don't put me in a group. I didn't ask to be in a group. So we'll just do it all together. So we're going to do Psalm 121 just a little bit. So we're going to look at Psalm 121. We're not going to do all of our exegetical work in here, but we're going to try to practice a little bit some of what I'm talking about. So we got Psalm 121. I'm going to, I'm going to read it briefly. Actually, I'm going to read it quickly just because of time's sake. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Now, if we were going to study this in group together, there's, of course, some warm things and encouraging things that we would find in this psalm, and that's part of our study. I don't make light of those things that what this verse means to you. I don't, I don't make light of that actually anymore, but I also want to add to that, hmm, maybe there's some things going on here that I would not have caught if I wasn't studying this in a group. You notice there's a heading on there. It says a song of ascents. There's a bunch of them starting at 120. There's a whole bunch of them. Anybody know what a song of ascent is? Oh, we're so close to the seminary. I know some of y'all know. Yes, brother. <laughs> yeah, so as pilgrims are going up, and it's always up to Jerusalem. You go up so you can get to the temple. So you're making pilgrimage to the temple. These are songs to be sung as you're making your way to the temple, a song of ascent. So now, with that in mind, maybe those hills make sense here. The old King James did not write this as a question. It said, I lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. I've heard umpteen sermons about my help being in the hills because that's, there's no question mark there. It's, it's read like a statement. Once again, translations become interpretations. So without the question mark, the hills become the source of my help. But here, it's a question in all, every modern translation. And if it's a song of a pilgrim making their way somewhere, have an arduous journey to, to undertake, especially if they're far away from Jerusalem, they're going to make their way to Jerusalem, to the temple, they look to the hills, that's where I got to go. It's going to be tough to traverse this. So what else is happening in the psalm? Oh, there's this encouragement. He's not going to let my foot slip when I have to hike. If I got to sleep out at night, I'm going to be protected. The bandits might come, but he'll keep me from harm. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of things in the psalm, but, but I'm not trying to solve it all now. I just, what I ask my students is just ask questions. So we've got the heading, and we, so that would drive me to a book or to brother, um, oh my goodness, your name's slipping me at the moment. I hated that. Lynn, thank you. I knew it was an L. But, but if I didn't have brother Lynn there, I'd have to go to a book and say, what is the psalm of ascent? That's homework, right? But then I'm going to ask myself some questions. What, what might it mean that this is a song and a poem, or a poem or in a song? I mean, why not just say it in prose? Why not just say, we have a good God. He'll watch over you. He'll do these things. Does it matter? Does the genre matter? You know, when I, when I talk about genre with my students, I say, you know, if I said to you, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi went into a bar, it would sound like I'm setting up a joke. 
and we expect things in a joke, right? We expect a punchline. If I said to you, once upon a time, I expect a fairy tale where, you know, animals talk and people fly and they change into each other and all that kind of stuff, and they live happily ever after. So I would expect some things, right? If I say it's a dark and stormy night, I expect a, a story to unravel, a novel or something like that. So the genre does help me to discern what's going on, right, or how I might read this text. So knowing it's a song also speaks to me. How, how might this song have sounded to an ancient Israelite? How might this poem fit into Scripture's overall story? And this is in the Old Testament, but does it suggest anything that we believe about Jesus? Is there a Jesus-centered way of thinking about this song? Jesus is Jewish. Jesus knows his scripture. As we ask the Holy Spirit for guidance, what might this song say to us in our day? Many of us are urbanites and suburbanites. Whose voice might we be missing in our analysis right now? And what other questions might remain as we think about these things? So for me, that's all fun. And it's, and it's what makes scripture not be stagnant for me. Because even though I've read that psalm many times in my life, I've heard it preached many times in my life, I can still go back to it and find some things that are rich and new and refreshing because other people's eyes are also on that text helping me to understand things that I hadn't seen before. That's part of what happens in community, right? Well, okay, let me just wrap up here. Wasn't that fun? I think it's fun. So anyway. <laughs> okay, take a class at North Park. It's all right. <laughs> But in all seriousness, <clears throat> I think Bible study is fun. And I used to feel it was foreboding. I used to feel it was just for the experts. And I used to feel like, like my voice didn't matter. And when I grew up in that kind of church I grew up in, it was really hard to assert anything other than to parrot back what somebody had said to you before. I say to my students now, when they do the exegesis papers, I say, look, don't try to impress me with fancy stuff. I said, start out with some questions, and I said, and ask kids to read this, because kids will ask you stuff that you think you already know. And they're reading something like, what's a Pharisee? Why'd he do that? Where'd he go there? What'd he say that for? They're going to ask you questions that's going to make you think, like, what in the heck is going on? I didn't see that before. So that's why, like Pastor Swanson said, in his, in his group, they include kids in their group. So that's something I want to encourage as well. And it just now hit me. Is that Brother Ray there? Is Brother Ray here today? I thought Brother Ray, I don't see him. Brother Ray Chang told me he was coming today, but I didn't see him. I wanted to give a shout out to the Asian American um, Christian Collaborative because they've been saying a lot of anti-violence stuff. So he's been saying, so I've been looking around to see if I see him, but I didn't see him. Sorry, I didn't want to distract you. But as I, as I wrap up, I want to say some Second Timothy things to keep in our minds when we're doing Bible study and we, and we have a few more questions by way of application. All scriptures God breathed, it says. It's profitable. So then let's ask the questions. If it's profitable for teaching, what have we learned? If it's profitable for reproof or for rebuke, what issues in your life or your community have been revealed now? For correction, what might you need to repent of or turn from? If it's profitable for training in righteousness, what decisions might you and your community need to make that will lead now to right actions? And equipping. What good works might follow your encounter with the Scripture? All of those kinds of things and those questions you ask, and in order doesn't matter, but my point is 
when you, when you engage the scripture, <clears throat> it's helpful to ask some questions that have to do with the text and then ask some questions that have to do with me. So sisters and brothers, I hope this wasn't too boring of a classroom session for you because I love exploring scripture. But I don't worship the scripture. I worship the God who gave us the scripture. Yeah, amen. The Bible's not a science book. It's not a math book. It's not even a history book. It's a divine love story showing us the ugliness of evil and the beauty of salvation. And here's the controversial part. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers to our questions. Rather, it guides us on a path of faith to trust in a God who knows we have these questions, knows that we have doubts and even fears, but who meets us in our humanness and guides us to a better way. So right now, we're looking through a dim mirror. We know in part, but one day, we'll know fully, even as we are fully known. So let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open, to work on them together, to continually explore how we can be more and more part of God's love story in this world. Lord, I give you thanks because you are good. And, and Lord, I confess this all the time because I need that reminder that you are good because sometimes it feels shaky in this world. But I confess that you're good. Your mercies endure forever. You are great and greatly to be praised. And then you've given us your word, Lord, that we can engage. It, it'll be a mirror to us, but it will also help us and guide us and be, uh, be a light to our paths, a lamp to our feet. So I'm asking, Lord God, that you would encourage us to do that work. Sometimes alone we study, but we also do it with others so that we can be enriched for our sisters and brothers throughout time and in different places. So, Lord, have your way. Guide us by your spirit, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.